Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. We've been in a series called The Showdown. We've been walking through the story of Ahab, Jezebel, and the prophet Elijah. We're at the moment in the story where Elijah is confronting the prophets of Baal that operated under the wicked queen Jezebel. They were allowed to come into the nation of Israel because Ahab, who was the king, the one that was supposed to lead the people towards God, had abdicated his responsibility, his authority, and his voice. And because of his passivity, the people of God began to drift towards false idols, lesser gods, man's own system in thinking. And so Elijah came, and there was this showdown on uh, the Mount Carmel where, God's, uh, where Elijah said, you call on your God, and I'll call on my God. And for hours, Baal's prophets called on their God, but the Bible says there was no answer. Silence from the false idols. And now Elijah is about to call on his God. But before he does, he does a curious thing. He gathers the people of Israel close to him. And in 1 Kings we, uh, chapter 18, verse 30, we see Elijah says to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. It had been cast down, neglected and forgotten. When they lifted the altar to Baal, they cast down the altar to the Lord. So Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He repaired the altar, each stone representing the tribe of Israel, so that when when it was whole, the sacrifice could be made for all of Israel, God's people, God's nation, God's very own, his set apart. With these stones, 12 stones, he built an altar. He built an altar in the name of of the Lord. I believe right now we are in a time where we, operating in the spirit of Elijah as Christians, as the church, must rebuild the altars, the altar of the Lord, which has been thrown down, cast aside, neglected, and forgotten. When I speak about the altar, what I mean is a place of worship. The altar is a memorial. It's a monument says this is what God did in this place for these people so that hundreds of years later, a father could be walking by that place with the son and tell the story of his mighty works from that altar. It stands in remembrance of a God that brought his people through the Red Sea into the promised land, vanquished his enemies. The altar stands as a memorial, but more than that, the altar stood as a boundary marker saying this land and this area is under the authority of this God. See, that's why every time Israel drifted from God, they put up the the, the altar to Baal, literally claiming the land that was God's to be to this false God. But when a godly man rose up, one of the first things God said is tear down that false idol. This is my land. I promised it to you. It's time for you to tear out the false things in your life and set some boundaries Set some areas aside. There are some things in your life that should be sacred unto God, untouched by man, not given over to culture. That's what I mean by altar, that you build an area of your life, that we as a church, we set some sacred stones apart, some truths, some boundaries, some values, and it's upon this altar that worship. Worship was lifted up from the altar. See, then their worship came from a physical altar with a high priest who would take an innocent blood of an animal because, see, our sin always requires innocent blood and would put that animal on the altar. But see, Jesus became our high priest and he became our perfect innocent sacrifice and his blood was put on the altar of heaven. Now the altar is in our heart. Now the place that we worship is within us, and it's on the altar that the presence of God comes. But make no mistake, the presence of God will not come on a neglected altar. 
a half-built altar. You will not come on an altar that's half to Baal and half to God. An unsacred place. A place that's been forgotten. You will not come on on a monument to self. Pride. Nation. He comes on an altar with living stones set apart, holy unto God. So when I talk about the calling of Elijah is to rebuild the altar, I'm talking about our calling. It is our calling to rebuild the things that have been tossed down, cast aside by culture, false beliefs, neglected by even well-intentioned people. But when the Spirit of God comes, he says, rise, young man, rise, young woman, and put the things that I called in their place back into proper place. This is the calling of Christians. This is the calling of the church. And before we can call on God, we have to reconsecrate ourselves. We have to reconsecrate the altar. That's what I believe God's calling us as a church to do today. He's calling us into consecration, into holiness, into fulfillment. So my sermon today It exists for me to communicate to you this vision, this truth, this word that God has given me. Today, we are going to reset the foundational stones of truth in your life and for our church. We are going to reset the foundational stones of truth in your life and for this church. We're going to talk about our set of beliefs. What are our values? What are our convictions? What is the system by which we live? What makes up our altar? What's sacred to us as saints? Last week I gave you the first three stones. Do you remember what they were? Number one is Jesus. The Bible calls him the chief cornerstone of all of creation. In other words, if you remove Jesus, all of creation, your world begins to tumble. Jesus is the stone by which you should build everything in your life. And everything in our church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Upon who? Upon himself. He's the first stone. The second stone is his promise, the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send my spirit to you. And he will guide you into all truth. So all truth will rest on his spirit. He will encourage us. The Holy Spirit will convict us. He will challenge us. And he will lead us. And the third stone I spoke about last week is the stone of the word. It's upon the word, the absolute truth of the word, the moral framework of the word that we build our lives, that we set our plans, that we put our faith. We do not, we do not, we do not put our faith in the systems of men or past experiences or emotions or self. We put our faith in the word of God. We believe that it is eternal. We believe that it is God-breathed, divinely inspired, and that if we build on the rock that is the word, even when hell itself comes and the shaking and the wind and the waves, we will not be torn down or cast aside, for the word shall remain. And from the word comes these next few foundational stones of truth that I want to set today in your life. The fourth stone that we as a church, you as a saint, we as awakening are going to set in its proper place is the stone of creation. It's the stone that God is the creator and we are the created. The Bible says in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, it was God. In the beginning, it was God. Now, if you disagree, you don't need to read any, anything else in the rest of the book. It all rests on this, that in the beginning, God. In the beginning, the creator created. He is the designer. He is the architect. He is the originator. He is the mover, the shaker, the alpha, the omega. He was there in the beginning, and he'll be there in the end. He made the heavens. He breathed the stars. He set the boundaries for the oceans. He created life. He formed man. He breathed into his nostrils. It was all God, completely and totally him. It was his power and his might. 
and the heavens proclaim the glory of God. His creation speaks about the creator. The skies display his craftsmanship. When you look at a beautiful sunrise, a stunning sunset, I guarantee it's the best sermon you'll ever hear. It's preaching to you. It's unique every night. All over the world, different. From your perspective, you'll see something different than someone one mile away will see. It's powerful. And God has his thumbprint on it. And he's saying, you see, no accident could create this. It's more beautiful than the greatest artist could ever capture in a painting. More stunning than the greatest poem could ever pronounce. The simplicity of the sky shouts, there's a creator. There's an architect, a designer, and he loves you. More than that, he knows you. More than that, he created you. The creator of the heavens and the earth is also the creator of you. Through this lockdown, one of the things that has really um, astonished me has been nature. You know, you never really value outside till you're forced to be inside. And I don't know if it's the rebellious nature in me, but the rebellion in me led me to nature. And uh, I began to see and reflect on God's stunning beauty. I, the whisper in the wind, I could, I could feel his presence. Just seeing how all of life circled around itself, all the patterns, all the consistencies, all of it exists to say there's something more. And, and as I would reflect on it and sit in the stillness of it, God would speak to me. More than that, God would teach me. I, I, I would challenge you to go quiet yourself, turn off your phone, sit for 30 minutes in nature and let the instructor teach you. Because he will. Just today when I was writing this sermon outside, I, I was sitting next to a spider web. I didn't know it was there until this insect was flying through and got trapped in it. And it began to struggle. And it began to get frustrated. This little thing was on its back, trying with all that it's got. And out of the shadows comes the spider. And I'm watching this whole thing go down. And it's like I could hear that British narrator, you know. And I saw the spider come out. And the spider's looking at this insect, insect. And I start, like, rooting for the insect. The insect that I would kill if it went in my house. But in here, outside, I'm saying, let's go. Come on, you can get out of this thing. Come on. And I, I'm seeing it almost get to the edge. And the spider's there. And right as it reaches the edge and gets out of the trap, the spider withdraws. And I'm, like, celebrating this thing while it's walking away. I'm like, let's go. And, and I just felt God speak to me saying, like, hey, I celebrate you when you get caught in stuff. I pray for you. I cheer you on. In fact, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They're not just cheering you on when you're doing good. When you get trapped in stuff and the enemy thinks he's got you, there are people praying for you. And there is heaven cheering you on. And when you get out, we celebrate. Nature will teach you about the goodness of God if you'll just pause and listen to the creator speak. You are created. You are created. The Bible says, for we are his workmanship. He worked on you. And some of you, he's still working on you. And he's got a lot of work to do. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God has a master plan. And he even laid out the path. Now he says, now follow this path. I created you for good works. I created you for a purpose. I created you to walk out a life. I created you for a reason. In Christ Jesus, for good works, your design declares a purpose. Your design declares that you are purposed. Your meaning, therefore, is derived from pursuing your God-given purpose. We're searching for meaning in so many places. Might I propose to you today that your meaning will come from fulfilling the purpose that God predestined for you. I want you to know you are not a random happenstance. You are not a cosmic mistake. 
You are not a collection of cells that evolved by instinct. That's a random, happy happenstance. You're more than that. God brought you here. He brought you here for a reason. He wants to proclaim his glory through you. Speak through your life. He wants it to declare his majesty as the rest of his creation does as well. You are not here by accident. You are not here without reason. See, the problem is we have a generation that's trying to derive meaning from a life that they believe has no innate purpose because they're missing an essential stone in their belief system that they're created and that when God created you, he placed you where he placed you for a reason. He purposed you. He put you in the right family, in the right nation, in the right day, and in the right time. And he created you for good works. And, and so a generation that doesn't believe that can't figure out why they're here. But hear me, you have to go back to your life giver to find out what kind of life he wants to give you. Hear me. The enemy wants to come and lie and say you're purposeless. You should have never been born. What happened to you or what you did now defines you. But he who did not create you dare not define you. The one who made you gets the final say over you. And he's designed you for a powerful, mighty, supernatural, stunning purpose. Hear me, church, pursue life by finding the life giver. He is the originator of your life. For he's the originator of all life. The next stone, the foundational truth, the boundary, the sacred thing that I believe you need to put in proper place in your life, and we as a church will put it in its proper place, is this stone of life. The Bible says in Jeremiah, for you form me, sorry, the psalmist David says, for you form me in uh, my inward parts. You knitted me together. In my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What he's saying is, before I even came into being, you saw me. Before I lived a day, you formed it. You knitted me together. Passionately, lovingly, creatively. My point is that, that the life, that the God-initiated life in the womb is sacred. And it deserves our protection. And our provision because of its origin. The creator God. He says to Jeremiah the prophet. He says before I formed you in the womb. I formed you. But before I even began that work. Before I formed you. In the womb I knew you. And before you were born. I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says, I, I started this whole thing and I worked this whole thing out and I knew why I was sending you, to whom I was sending you. Here's the beautiful thing God reveals in that statement to Jeremiah, that your purpose precedes your birth. You did not arrive on planet earth and now God says, figure it out. Come on, get to it. No, God says, I sent you there like a missionary, into a very specific place. And I sent you with a purpose. And before there was that spark of life, even in the womb, I had already begun my work. And I had set you, far, uh, set you apart with a purpose. The Bible says, for that, those who God foreknew, he also predestined. He has a destination for you. And that is why the enemy is so against you, why he's so against life. For the enemy's goal is to hurt God through destroying his creation by his creation. It's why he tries to convince us to hate each other, be divided against each other, father against son, 
mother against daughter, friend against friend, and from parents to those who are in the womb. The enemy tries to get us to do his dirty work for him. Because he's powerless against us, the only thing he can do is lie to us and try and work through us. All because he hates God. He hates God's wondrous creation. And he hates that you look like him. That you bear his image. Even in your imperfection. Think of it, Lucifer. In all of his stunning gold and nature in heaven. He still, he still didn't have enough. And so when he was cast out of heaven, excommunicated, he lost the thing that you get to have. Relationship with God. Proximity to his presence. And so now he hates you for good reason. Because there is power in the seed. There is power in the seed. Don't forget the enemy was there in Genesis 3. When the prophecy was stated by God to Eve and to the snake. And he said, uh, through your womb, he says to the woman, through your seed, his offspring will be destroyed. Through your seed, he will fight against the enemy's seed. That's what we're in. We are in an ancient battle from good versus evil. And we are under the lineage of Jesus. And yes, the enemy bruised Jesus' heel, but, but Jesus has crushed his head. And what I want you to understand is life is as valuable in seed form as it is fully mature. For an oak seed will one day grow into a mighty oak. Roots that go deep. Shade that goes far. And yet that oak is contained within the seed. There's power in the seed. And the enemy knows it. And that's why he hates this generation. Don't forget, he came after Moses when he was just in the seed. An infant. Chased after Jesus when he was just an infant. He came after the seed. And so the enemy is continuing this same sick plan of coming after a mighty generation in seed form. I want you to hear me for those in our church that were deceived like Eve from the enemy. Maybe circumstances, the lie of the world, pain caused you to make a mistake. For those of you that had gone through having abortion, I want you to hear me. There is mercy for past mistakes and truth for future choices. As a church, we are committed to providing, to resourcing, and to protecting all life inside the womb and outside of it. We're so committed. We launched We Heart Lives two years ago, an organization where we are going to do all that we can to combat the plan of the enemy, which is always death and always pain, always grief and always shame. But I want you to know with God there is mercy, forgiveness, liberty, and freedom, body, mind, soul, that he can even take the past mistakes and bring them into his wonderful plan. We as a church, we love lives. We believe that lives matter inside the womb, outside the womb. And so our response is to love all, to serve all with all that we've got. And if you want to hear my heart, my wife's heart on this, we did a whole 45-minute conversation. You can find it on our, on our YouTube. Talking about life. Talking about its sacredness. And maybe you're saying, oh, Jordan's getting political. I'm not. I'm speaking about morality. I'm speaking about morality. And let no one have more of a say into it than the representatives of Jesus Christ. Let no one have more of an opinion on it than those that believe in the creator of it. We love life. We believe God has set it apart. and We rebuild that part of the altar. The next stone that we are called to build our lives on, to build this church on, is the stone of marriage. See, God includes human interaction in his design process. Remember I told you each stone sits on the previous one. If you take any of the lower ones, they'll all topple and fall. 
Well, so marriage sits on the stone of creation. That God, when he designed us, also designed how we would work, interact, have relationship. And there's a design principle that you'll find that's true in nature and true even beyond, is form follows function. That the way we were created was specific and designed so that there would be a biological function of the two becoming one. That happens in marriage. I'm uh, preaching this way because I don't know how many of your kids are in the room. But we believe that what the enemy tries to tear down, we're called to build up. We believe that marriage is powerful, it's mighty, it's set apart, it's ancient, it's necessary, and that God desires it. In Genesis 1, we see God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's form following function. See, the problem that God saw when he looked down on Adam was that he was all alone. God says it's not good for man to be alone. That's one of the things that worries me about this pandemic is the virus of loneliness, growing cold one to another, being isolated. Isolation is a form of torture. And here we are, months and months in it. And I'm certainly not God, but I'm looking around saying, this ain't good, us being alone. When God looked from heaven and he just saw Adam, he says, that's not enough. If I allow this to go on, He's going to be overwhelmed with loneliness. And understand that's not part of his plan. And so God began to design. And he took from Adam from his rib and he made a woman named Eve. And God brought them together. God brought them together. So God's solution was marriage. Marriage is this. It's a God-designed covenant between a man and a woman. One to another for life. It was not thought up by us, legislated by us. From the very beginning, it was created by God, brought together by God. Think of it in a garden. What an amazing picture. What a stunning picture. There's the man and the woman and God standing between in a garden. Because the point that I believe God was trying to express to the rest of humanity is this This is what marriage should look like. You two, together with me, growing together in a garden. Marriage will grow you up real fast. It's a good thing. It matures men, creates a family. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be love, appreciation. You grow together in marriage, and that's what God always intended. That was part of his creation, was relationship. Hear me. Relationship was God's answer to loneliness, not just sex. Sex doesn't cure loneliness. But relationship, marriage, intimacy, covenant, this is what God has given us. And Jesus confirms the plan. Look at what Jesus said. He says, have you not read? That's what Jesus always goes back to. Have you not gone back to the principle of the word? Have you not read that he who created them? You see how this all builds on? Number three, have you not read? That's number three, that God who created them. That's number four. From the beginning, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's for all the millennials. Get out of the basement. He shall leave his father and mother. I don't know where you're going to go, but go somewhere. That's step number one. Leave his father and mother. Now you're saying you better move on or else I'm going to shut this off. Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I like that. I like that phraseology, hold fast to his wife. Like, you know, you probably shouldn't got her so cling tight, you know, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Jesus speaking, confirming this plan. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Form follows function. Another way of saying that is the form is the function. The two were always designed to become one. They're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no one get in between. Let no thinking, no ideology. Let no laws. Let no open doors. Let no sin get in between. Who God brought together, let no one tear apart. Marriage was always God's plan for you, for me, 
for this nation, for this world. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Strong marriage creates a healthy home. A healthy home creates safe communities. And safe communities create a stable society. The enemy knows this. That's why to upend society, he goes to the marriage. If he, can create, if he can create a generation of fatherlessness, he eventually can create a society of violence. If he can create a generation filled with divorce, he later can create an unstable nation. Strong marriages create healthy homes. Healthy homes create powerful, safe, fun communities. And strong communities create stable societies and stable nations. If you want to tear down society, start with the marriages. If you want to build up society, start with your marriage. Because the reality is a strong marriage, it leads to a stable life. It leads to a stable life. It might take some work. It might take some dying of self and flesh. And accountability, change. But a strong marriage leads to a stable life. Now you might say, well, how? How do I work on my marriage? Love more. <laughs> no. Commit more. Commit more. Love is so theoretical. It's the answer. It's Hollywood's answer to everything. Just love. But the reality is if you chase the fleeting emotion of love, you'll chase it out of marriage. You must deepen that well. How do you do it? Through commitment. Commit. Work. Work at your marriage. Invest into your marriage. Pray over your marriage and in your marriage. I got one for you. Apologize. That's a difficult one. Say you're sorry before it's gone three weeks. Apologize in your marriage. And don't give up in your marriage. We got something in our house where we don't, we don't say the word divorce. I don't care how crazy the fight gets, we don't say that word. It's not an option that will ever be on the table. When you take it off the table, it's amazing how much easier it is to commit when there's not an open door in the background. Commit to your marriage. Commit to the woman that God gave you in your youth. Commit to the man that God formed for you. And pray that God brings divine healing, restoration, reconciliation. If he parted the sea, surely he can bring you two back together. Marriage. I want to speak to those that are living together but aren't married. You are out of God's covenant. You are out of his design. And if you believe the word and you want to make your life right, it's time to get married. You might be saying, well, I'm not sure if it's time been together five years, sharing a bed, you've got two kids, you either know or you don't know by now. It's time. Come under the covenant and do not come under culture. Because if you are going to decide by culture, it's amazing what culture would allow in your marriage and outside it. It's amazing what culture would allow of the men in marriages. It's amazing. Why? Because culture doesn't actually want your marriage to be successful. Culture which is under the authority of the enemy, wants devastation, dysfunction, anger, and divorce. But God wants stability. He wants for you, when you pull up into your driveway, not that there's a sigh, but there's a contentment. He wants there to be peace in your home, strength in your home, foundation in your home. How? Have a strong marriage based on the word of God, commitment to one and to another, and see what God will do. The final foundation stone that we are going to put into place as saints and as a church is the foundation stone of family. You see that these build on each other. That creator creates life. Life, God brings together into marriage. Marriage produces a family. Now I'm going to read a verse to you, and you're going to think it's controversial, but it's not. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, 
For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. These verses are found in Colossians. They're just bullet points for a godly household. I'm not saying a perfect household, but a godly household. It's not that we won't struggle, but that we will endure. It's not that we won't have to walk through valleys, but we won't have to live in them. I believe that God can build us up because his goal through your family is legacy, heritage. His goal is a loving family, but God is going to demand some things from you. And here's what I find in this verse. I find that God is demanding many times the things that you the thing that you are going to have the hardest time with. God demands the place that you have to give over to him. The thing that he is requiring of you sometimes is the most difficult thing to give up, to sacrifice. In Colossians 3, it starts with the woman. If you could go back, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husband." Now, everyone's going to get mad here. But do you know why God requires it? Because that's the most difficult thing. Submission. That's where you're going to struggle. In fact, you go all the way to Genesis, and God says to Adam, she's going to desire to rule over you. That's going to be the difficulty. That's a consequence of the fall. You're always going to want to second-guess your husband. Always think that his plan is not as good as your plan. Where he wants to go, he's not getting there the right way. Submission is the thing you're going to have to fight against. The idea that he's an idiot, that he's got no clue, is super difficult, especially on that one, because culture definitely agrees, like he is an idiot. And he would almost even agree, I am an idiot. But if you're not careful and you give in to that, always second-guessing, always having a better plan, always adding everything up to this guy not getting it, pretty soon you're going to despise the man that you once loved. You're going to despise the man that you once looked up to. Look at Jezebel and Ahab. Ahab is a picture of abdication. Jezebel is what it looks like when you get to be in charge. Is this what we want? Is this what we want to produce? See, here's the world's lie. The lie of the world wants to come to women and wants to say equality means no submission. Equality means you never, ever submit. And if you submit, now you are not equal. But you have to understand something. The Bible says that the woman is equal to the man. The Bible says that the man should never look down on the woman. The ancient rabbis used to say that God took from the, the, the rib of the man to make woman, not from the head for her to be above him or the foot for her to be below him, but for, from the rib for them to be equal partners in life. Think about this. Jesus, though he was equal with God, submitted himself to the plan of God saying, let it not be my will, but your will be done. Was Jesus, was Jesus wrong? Was that model not something that we should all, men and women alike, begin to grow in, move towards? No, Jesus was God, but he showed us that submission never means a lack of equality. It's a powerful thing. The Bible goes on. It says, men, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Love. The thing that men are going to struggle with is love. That's the area that they're going to have a difficult time with. But God says, I want you to lay down your life. In Ephesians, lay down your life for your wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. John 3.16 teaches us that for God so loved that he gave. So loving is not just marital relationships. Loving isn't just making love. Love is sacrificing, denying yourself, laying your life down. And this is where men are going to have a hard time. God's saying, I don't want you to be harsh, cold, withdrawn. These are the things, men, you're going to have to fight in yourself. Come on, you know you're full of pride. You know you're always going to be right. You know you can't let someone else have an opinion in this thing. And God's saying, no, I need you to be tender not harsh. I need for you to be loving. Loving. What does loving look to her? Well, who knows? You're going to have to discover it. 
You're going to have to find out. And then you're going to have to work at it. You can say, well, that doesn't come naturally to me. That's why it's in the Bible. Because you're going to have to submit yourself in loving your wife. You're going to have to submit yourself, say, I'm not going to be harsh with her. I'm not going to be tough with her. Now, you might say, I'm not that way. Well, then maybe you've only been married one year. But around 5, 10, 15 years, that old self tries to get on you. Where you're a big, tough guy, and you have to now continually fight against your flesh. And say, no, I am here to lay my life down for my wife. To protect and to serve her with all that I am and all that I have. I'm here to be humble. Not cold, but warm towards her. Open towards her. Receiving towards her. Now, I don't have a whole time to preach this, but you need to figure out what her love language is. Then you need to figure out how to speak it fluently. The world's lie is this. The lie of the world tries to come and say to men, men are dogs, so don't expect much from them. And men seem to like that lie because then they can get away with anything. Well, I'm, not, I'm, un, I'm unaccountable. I'm unreliable. I'm just a dog. I'm just a messed up guy. I just got a lot of issues. I just got nothing going on. I've got no ability and no responsibility. And I've got no, no, um, I've got no um, self-discipline. I'm a dog. No, God says you're not. You are here to love your wives. Commit yourself to that one wife. No matter who you see, no matter who you catch back up with, no matter what shows up on Instagram, you're not a dog. You don't have some inability to control thyself. You're committed. You've chosen. Set apart. And the woman of your life, the children in your life, they're going to need for you not to buy in to that foolish lie that allows men to be boys for their whole existence. Mature man. Grow up man. Have the ability to deny yourself and become like Jesus. Lay your life down for your bride. And then submission becomes easy because you're her whole world. I heard an Awakening You class where Pastor David was talking on this verse out of Ephesians. And, and he said, you know, when you came together, you were ready to commit your life to this man. And he to you. You loved each other. Ready to come into covenant. Submission should be easy in that situation. From you to him, from him to you, from both of you to Jesus Christ. Young people, the Bible says, obey your parents. The problem with young people in, in this regard is young people think they know everything. They are the smartest people on planet earth, young people. And, and, and I know, not that far removed from it, I know you think, that you got it figured out, and your parents are absolutely clueless. They're clueless because life is very complicated, and they've actually been brought into some hum humility, and them saying, I don't know, doesn't mean they're dumb. It means that they've learned more about life than you have. They're not clueless. they got some wisdom. When you get some wisdom in the world, you know things are difficult. There's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of changing tides. There's a lot of things that I've yet to learn. There's a lot of humility. And the world's lie wants to come, speak to young people, and, and say the failures of your parents abolish their right to lead you. Because they're imperfect, they don't get to lead you. Because their emotions or their reactions or their decisions are not perfect, then they don't get to lead you. But I'm telling you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Imperfect people can still be anointed, can still be set apart, Imperfect people can still lead. And more than that, here's the spiritual principle. God says, you think God doesn't know they're imperfect? God says, I know that they got a lot of things they're still working on. See, one of the things you realize when you grow up is that, um, um, is that no one really grows up. They're just older middle schoolers, you know? <laughs> You're all still working on yourselves. <laughs> Young people, you don't know that yet. You haven't grown up yet and realized how difficult it is with life. So God sets the spiritual principle to say, I know they're imperfect, but if you obey them, I will bless you. If you obey them, I will bless you. If you honor them, I will bless you. In fact, in the commandments, it's one of the few commandments, if the only commandment, with a blessing attached. Honor your mother and father, and I'll give you a long life. I always wondered if that was because 
uh, God would make your life supernaturally long or you would receive wisdom and not die young. Honor your mother and father. It will go well with you. You will be blessed. You will learn from their experiences. And by the way, experience is a harsh taskmaster. You don't want to have to learn the things that they've learned the way that they've learned them. Let them pass down their experience so that you don't have to continually re-experience from generation to generation failure. Let them lead you. Learn from them. Finally, it says, Father, Father, speaking of the men again, don't break your children's spirits. Don't break, don't embitter, don't provoke them. Don't get them angry. Don't break their spirits. See, a father has a unique ability to instill identity in a child. The mother has a unique ability to nurture a child, but the father has a unique ability to speak identity. But so, the father also has the unique ability, ability to break or, or cut short or undercut their identity. That's how you can see a 50-year-old man that's still angry with his father who's been dead for 30 years, and you say, what is that? That's a hurt child that had their identity undercut. But so a father could also build up his children. Tell them who they are. Let them know that God's got them. Let them know that they're going to be strong. Let them know that they're going to be blessed. Let them know that they are loved. They are accepted. The the problem is many times um, fathers don't do this because just simply children can get on your nerves. They can annoy you. And that's why it's saying don't, don't embitter them. Don't flip out at them. Don't react. Don't yell at them. You all are pretending like you never yell at your kids because they're being super loud. Don't provoke them. Don't break their spirit just because they're screaming or they're annoying or they make mistakes. I'll never forget, my dad bought a brand new laptop. I was young, young, five maybe. It's one of my earliest memories. He bought a brand new laptop. This was when laptops were like new, like, like laptops themselves were a new thing. And it was thin. It was this amazing laptop. He pulled it out of the case, plugged it in, walked away, and I put a giant cup of water all over it, fried the laptop. It had been running for about five seconds, thousands of dollars. My dad had a moment there where he could have been justifiably angry at a young person that doesn't understand. But because he was able to control his anger and love, he, he, that, that's not a moment that stands out in my mind as a negative It's a moment that stands out now as a father. We're saying he had some self-control. I aspire to that. Fathers, you have the ability. Here's the lie of the world that tries to come. The lie of the world tries to come and say you can't handle the pressure. You can't handle it in the home. You got to get out of here. You got to give up. You got to just move on. You're overwhelmed. You got to stay at the office. It's a lie. It's a lie. Fathers, you're necessary in the home. You are necessary. Your strength, your love, your stability is necessary in the home. We need a generation of committed fathers. Not perfect, but committed fathers. The enemy assails the family, comes against it, wants to tear it down. Tear down the nuclear family. Why? Because it knows what a strong father will produce. It knows what a loving family will produce, and the enemy hates it because a loving family will produce a stable home. God-fearing children, not perfect, but being perfected, loving God, loving each other. This is how a society can be built, but it's got to be built on the word of God. Hear me. We as a church, we are a family church. We love the family, we pray for the family, we're thankful for the family, and we are going to set that stone in its place. I would have never thought it would be semi-controversial to be a family church, but here we are in a day and age where even the family is a negative. Let me tell you this, the devil is overplaying his hand. We have deep in us, in our creation, the resonating knowledge of truth. You might not have liked everything I said today, but I think if you listen to the Holy Spirit, you'll know there was a lot of truth there. Not because of my words, but because of the word. So come to the Holy Scriptures. Come to Jesus' word 
and let him set the altar in your life and in this church. Hear me, church. We will reset the foundational stones for truth in this church. We will operate on them, build on them, despite the cost, despite the consequence. But I believe that if we stand for truth in the age of deceit, God will stand with us. I believe God will bless us. I believe his favor will be upon us. And I want to pray for you that favor is on your house and your family. It's on your marriage. It's on your life. That favor is on this church. Let me ask you, have any of these foundational stones fallen in your life? Maybe you've never heard it spoken like this. And things have been out of place. Today's the day to reprioritize truth. Set it on its foundation stones. Maybe you've listened to culture. You've bowed to pressure. You've listened to your friends and your family that know little and have no authority. And you've allowed them to speak into the direction of your life. Today that ends. Let the word of God guide the direction of your life. Here I ask you, have you accepted the world's words on these fundamental truths? Or are you going to commit yourself to God's word on these truths? Church, this will be our foundation going forward. We're going to build upon this. This will be our sacred worship, our boundaries, and our monuments. And I pray God raises up strong, God-fearing, powerful families, strong marriages, strong children, and that he gets the glory. Can you say amen? Hey, listen, if you want to learn more teaching like this, I really want to encourage you. Go to awakeningyou.org. Pastor David taught a whole class on Ephesians. Many of the principles I spoke from today are found in there. I believe as you get more word in you, these foundations are going to be set rightly in you. And I believe God's going to bring change through you. Thanks for listening to the Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon.